guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have an electrifying episode oh, for you. Oh, there it is. The puns are flying already. I've been waiting all day <laughs> to say that. Yeah, so we teased this uh, last week. We're going to do a little history story on the origin of the electric vehicle. And this is going to be a little bit of a deeper dive, and we're going we're gonna to section this one out. So this is going to be part one of the electric vehicle. Yeah, I figured this is probably deep enough that we could... You know, we could go a little further into this one rather than skimming off the surface. So Right. And I've had feedback, you know, that we really like getting into some of these characters involved. It's not just the history of the topic. Right. What really makes it entertaining are the people. And yeah, exactly. That's with any good story. So it's not the cars, it's the people, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I feel about us, Chris. I think isn't that the the Porsche Club like uh tagline? It's not the cars, it's the people. Is it really? I think it might be. Really, I might be wrong. Really but, corny, but yeah, yeah, well. but true. Yeah, that's true. It's, okay. it's full of like 70-year-old guys with Caymans. So it's, it's kind of <laughs> is what it is. I, yeah. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> December 22nd, 1843, the year of our Lord. Oh, God, here we go. That was the day that Thomas Parker was born in Colebrookdale, England. Which I wish I lived in Colebrookdale. That's I was going nice to say these name. old European towns have the best names. You know, it's kind of it's kind of crazy that I watch like content creators that exist in Europe. Right, it, their their lives are so much easier. The photo locations are better. <laughs> All the old cars are there. Like you can dress up like some old dude in British clothes and look awesome. I mean, there's it's just like plus you have Goodwood and it's just it's, there's just like this amazing rich culture history. That's true. I'm trying to think if far exceeds ours. It's so much deeper. Well, certainly for European cars, which makes sense. But I'm trying to think: is there any like is there any analogy or any parallel here in America that you could be like, yeah, well, we have this. The Salt Flats? Sure. Bonneville? That's true. Kind of hot rod culture. Some hot SoCal? Yeah, well, that's yeah, SoCal. But the thing is, is that everything is constantly changing here. It's right. like constantly whereas turning over. Overseas, whereas, you whereas, have kind of that. Right, yeah. Well, it's been blown up like 10 times <laughs> and like sort of half rebuilt and everything's kind of still old in some places and new in others. But here just kind of seems, especially California, yeah. it's really kind of whitewashed. If you actually fly into Los Angeles, it's just like the sea of tan houses. It's That's very so true. It's so ugly. It's like so ugly. But in Europe, it's just like these, you know, if you go to like England, it's like Scotland and the Highlands and everything. It's all right. rocky and, you know, like low growth. Like it's not a bunch of trees. It's kind of open and sparse, which is what I kind of like. I don't know. I'm just jealous. You're just picturing photo locations right now. As you're going I through. am in my head. Well, I'm sure Colebrookdale would have good locations. I'm sure it is. So Thomas and Parker. And probably a good pub, too. Oh, I'm sure there's an amazing <laughs> pub in Colebrookdale. So Thomas Parker from Colebrookdale. He was the son of Thomas Wheatley Parker and Ann Fletcher. His father was a molder, which is like metal casting, like okay. metal molding, right? Like sand casting stuff. Yep, and exactly. And that was at the Colebrookdale Ironworks Company, of course. The Ironworks had been founded by one Abram Darby the first uh, in the early 18th century, a.k.a. the 1700s. So this is a very old company yeah, that they're working around. at. Is it still around? I don't know. I didn't look that cool. up. I think they said it did merge with something else, and I don't think it's still there. But... The Parkers had worked there for, quote, several generations. This was the time when you trained under your father and continued on his line of work, just like his father before him, and so on and so on. So there was this entire, like, generations of these Parkers that worked at the Colebrookdale Ironworks Company. Well, back in the company. day, your, your name would be, like, John Mendelssohn, which is, right. you're the son of Mendel. I mean, that was <laughs> it was so, like, you just did whatever was there. Because what else did you do? The education was so inaccessible to the regular person back well, then. Well, that was your 
through education. Right. right? So you that's all you have. Differently. You grow up and you go work with your father. Not, nobody's in school. I guess you could go to boarding school or something. But it's it, you didn't really get educated. Nobody could read. Educated. Right? Educated. And then they so they would just go work as a blacksmith under their dad and just that's what you did for the rest of your life till you were dead. You know, that's it. That's optimistic. Well, it doesn't sound awful. No. You know? Well, regardless, that's what young Thomas did. Just that. He worked as a molder alongside his father at the Colebrookdale Ironworks. Then at the age of 19, Thomas was selected as one of four representatives for the Ironworks company to attend the 1862 International Exhibition in London. This exhibition of London was basically like a world's fair at the time. And in fact, the expedition was a showcase of the advances made in the Industrial Revolution, especially in the decades since the first great exhibition, which was 1851. So it's all these new technologies and all the kind of wonders of the Industrial Revolution that's being shown at this World's Fair. So among some of these items on display were the electric telegraph, submarine cables, the first plastic called Parkinson, which I'm sure was terrible. Parkinson. Uh, machining tools, looms, and precision instruments were all things that were like really high-tech things at this World's Fair. Uh, exhibits included large pieces of machinery, such as parts of Charles Bagbiggy's analytical oh, engine. I wish my name was Charles Bag... What is it? <laughs> Charles Babbage. Babbage? Babbage? Yeah. yeah. I like that guy. Anyways, he made an analytical engine. Uh, they showed off cotton mills and massive maritime engines. One of the highlights was the manufacture of ice by an early refrigerator, which, quote, caused an absolute sensation. Oh my goodness, Martha, it's ice! Can you believe it? It would be, because back then, what it was is everybody had their ice delivered, right? right. So they'd, like, it would show up on a train or a boxcar, and you'd have, like, this huge pro- like, just a huge 75 hunk of ice. pound block of ice that you'd put in your ice locker. Right, and it would just, like, it just slowly, slowly melt. But here, ice was being created. That's amazing. It's ice! That's what they said. I, um, I, do you have? Can you back that up? No, no? not that okay. particular one. Uh, Benjamin Simpson showed photos from the Indian subcontinent. Oh my heavens, Martha! Oh photos from the Indies. Hold on, I got to get my sound effects out. Like, get... no, we're still gone. <laughs> uh, the London and Northwestern Railway exhibited one of their express passenger locomotives, the Number Five Thirty One Lady of the Lake. The Lady of the Lake, which won a bronze medal at the exhibition, which, how does a train win a medal? I don't know. Well, trains were pretty, I mean, you got to think back in the day, trains were the thing, right? right. So, I mean, trains were being built so everywhere. Lady it was of like the a, Lake was the train. Right. It was so popular that an entire class of locomotive became known as the Ladies of the Lake. I like it. That's a great name for anything. <laughs> I guess I so. It sounds almost like a like a horror film. Ladies of the lake. <laughs> they come crawling out of the lake and I can picture it. And steal your your combustion engines and take them <laughs> back into the deep. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> sounds like a horrible film to me. Yes. So uh, other like I'm really honing in on this exhibit because it's just hilarious the things that were there. There was an extensive art gallery designed to allow an av- an even light without reflection on the pictures. Oh my goodness! No glare. Like, that's basically what they're talking about. See? Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Very funny. Uh, The exhibition also included an international chess tournament, the London 1862 Chess Tournament. Oh, good heavens! Competitive chess! I I love playing. Do you play chess, Jake? I do. Remember, we 
I oh, lost. That's right. We yeah. played a really long game. Yeah. Like one move every week. And then it was like over like a light switch, wasn't it? Yeah, it yeah. was. <laughs> Who won that game? You did. Okay, just so everybody. Um, oh, I'm not surprised by that. <laughs> I'm not a good chess player. Uh, the 1862 International Exhibition was such a grand occasion that no one wanted to miss a thing. In fact, there was an anecdote of 70-year-old Robert Slaney who fell through the floorboards at the opening of the exhibition and broke his leg. He, quote, carried on with his visit despite the injury. <laughs> he later died from gangrene from the untreated leg. <laughs> oh, no. That's almost like the, the oh. guy from uh, that did the, the other car thing where I was like, yeah, he, he used to race cars across, the, across Germany or whatever, and he crashed into a dog and died. That's right. Yeah. Same same type of thing. <laughs> yeah. So well, that's the problem. Back then, you could just cut your leg open and die. I know. Well, okay. If you are going to an opening ceremony for this World's Fair thing and you break your leg, you know, I mean, maybe you should seek medical attention. Yeah, I suppose. What, did he just keep walking around Yeah, on he it? kept just attending the exhibit. Just the bones just grinding I'm, away. I can't be good. Whatever happened, because then he died from He's gangrene. Dead. So our young molder from Colebrookdale, Thomas Parker, was just as enamored with the event. He was especially inspired by the technology shown there, including the electric telegraph and wet battery. Wet cell batteries were containers that held liquid and electrolytes and the metallic electrodes, and this would revolutionary it would revolutionize the battery industry. Before this, they were all just solid state batteries. Right. So later in that year, Thomas actually moved to Birmingham. And where what year again? Just to eighteen sixty two. Okay. He moved to Birmingham in order to get more experience as a molder. So the company, after going to this fair or whatever, they send him somewhere else for more tutelage. I think it would be an appropriate word. Yeah, I think that works. Uh, however, during this time, he attended lectures of the nonconformist preacher, George Dawson, which apparently had an effect on him. The nonconformist preacher? So Is I know you'd ask about this. So George Dawson was an English quote, nonconformist preacher, lecturer, and activist. He was an influential voice in the calls for radical political and social reform in Birmingham, a philosophy that became known as the civic gospel. Is this the dude that would have been burned at the stake in the 1600s, probably? <laughs> probably. <laughs> this dude sounds like the Catholic so, Church would be... Honestly, it, it, that whole part isn't important. What is important is the fact that he then moved on again to an area colloquially. Colloquially, this is a hard word to colloquially. say. Colloquially, that's not even right. Colloquially, colloquially known. <laughs> colloquially, colloquially. What Jesus if I? Maybe Christ. I need to say it in an English accent. Colloquially. There you go. That works. So basically, he meets this preacher that's super like unorthodox and like puts plants these seeds in his right. mind. So he's like, maybe you should move. Maybe you should do something else with your life. I think that's really what, what it was. was. Sure. Yes, that's why I included it. So he moved to uh, this place that the locals call the Potteries. That way, I don't have to say the word colloquially. <laughs> <laughs> it's here where in 1866 he married Jane Gibbons, daughter of engine driver Lewis Gibbons, which I assume an engine driver is just like a locomotive engineer yeah probably they moved to manchester where thomas decided to attend chemistry lectures and in december 1867 the young newlyweds moved back to thomas's hometown of colebrookdale i love colebrookdale parker went back to a, work hold on a second colloquial colloquial colloquial, colloquial. Col so colloquially colloquially the problem is adding the y to the end that's that's the issue colloquially i'm just gonna say it like that the whole time so he attended chemistry lectures, then him and his new wife moved back to Colebrookdale. Parker went back to work at the Ironworks as a foreman now. 
However, he was soon offered the position. How, how old is he, do you think? So this is 67. He was born in 43. So he's 40, 24? 24 years old. So he's a foreman at 24. He's doing all right. Yeah, I think so. Which rightly so if he grew up doing this stuff. He's exactly. Actually, it's not like he's been doing it for six years. He's been doing it for 21 years because <laughs> yeah, he probably started forging things at three years old. <laughs> um, Someone's got to pick up the slack. Right. So he went back to Ironworks as a foreman. And then he was soon offered the post of chemist in the electroplating department, which is probably because he was the most qualified one there, having just gone to a lecture about chemistry. They're like, wait a minute. That's all it takes. You know about this chemistry stuff? That's Here's all it a takes. job. <laughs> well, that's just, like I said, education was so, like, even in America in the South if in, back in the days, if you went to, like, one year of college, you were more educated than in the entire state. Yeah. I mean, so just imagine over there, that's even sooner. It's so just, I'm just picturing that, you know, long to- young Thomas comes to town. Oh, Thomas, you're back. That's great. We're going to give you this, uh, this foreman position. You can oversee your peers everything else and he mentions to some guy the other day oh well when i was attending a, a chemistry lecture like wait you know chemistry you can do everything now <laughs> yeah so you're in charge of this whole department so he's yeah he's in charge of the electroplating department um and this is when thomas the molder became thomas the inventor in 1876 he received his first patent for an improved steve steam pump parker and weston's patent pump so this is so he's still not making electric anything yet. No, just hold on. Okay, we're taking the long road. No, that's fine. I just I'm, that's, it's, it, I'm just thinking of our other episode we have with with uh, the Schwimmwagen. Yeah, where the dude started with the Schwimmwagen. Right, and then did Schwimmwagen until so he was dead. <laughs> that's so, all that guy did. So at least this guy's you know he's, he, he's got a breadth of yeah, uh, career. Yeah. I guess we'll call it. So he's got his patent for his Parker Weston patent pump, which was manufactured exclusively what by the Colebrookdale Ironworks Company. And it was even awarded a medal in the International Inventions Exhibition of what 1885. What, what, is, what is this pump? It's a, it's a steam pump. For just it anything. For steam. Just doing any kind of pump Industrial work. Yeah, okay. pumping. Right. Sure. Um, and yeah, so it won a medal at this exhibition. And I feel like there's a trend now that Thomas really likes his exhibitions and fairs and awards from exhibitions and affairs. Okay. Okay. I just thought it was funny that everything is like getting a medal throughout his career. Oh, so he's he's getting medals for all this stuff. Right. Okay. Yeah. So in the electroplating department, he replaced battery cells which were powered which powered the entire process with a large dynamo which he had designed and built himself. So dynamos were basically the first electrical generators capable of delivering like significant power enough right. to be used for industrial purpose. And this was actually the first time do a dynamo a, do we know had how been a dynamo, used. Do we know how a dynamo works? Um, I did look it up. It's basically like your standard uh, direct current generator. Okay. Um, with, you know, like a, a Mount rotating or whatever. force. Exactly. Um, around this, because before this time, it was all like static electricity generators. Right. Like the weird stuff so that Tesla but, but was but using. But a dynamo and, still is like, this is the voltage it does. It doesn't have like any kind of voltage regulator or anything, I don't no, think. No, no, I don't. So think, it's I really think that's still pretty rudimentary. Exactly. Um, around the same time, there was a national concern about the detrimental effects of coal on smoke and s- uh, coal smoke on cities, a.k.a. pollution. You think we're right in the you know heart? What? I watched, uh, um, I watched. what was it, the, the movie with Winston Churchill? Okay. Okay, so they had, like, this thing where the weather came in, and then <sighs> all the pollution, like, just screwed all of London. Like, the, just the coal pollution. Just, sorry, just touching on it. Yeah. But it caused, like, this rain and this wind, and it just, oh, yeah. like, destroyed the city. Like, the coal pollution was so, so, so bad. It's probably like China today. 
Yeah, yeah, which is why they're like all over the electric vehicle market right now. Exactly. Yeah. I think there's like I read uh, yesterday there's 80 or 90 different manufacturers of cars in China right now. Wow, like like some like incredible, just everything popping. Yeah, up they're trying right to consolidate now. it right now. But jeez, so everyone was kind of concerned about all of this pollution and coal smoke, and you know we're basically in the throes of the industrial revolution, as you talked about. Right. So the Colebrookdale company produced the chiral grate. Invented by, of course, our friend Thomas Parker. It was an open grate in which anthracite coal could be burnt. It was awarded the silver medal at the Smoke Abatement Exhibition in the 1881. Smoke Abatement Exhibition again that's with how, the exhibition. That's that's what that's how bad things were. Is they had to have an exhibition for smoke. <laughs> I know. So, like, he even invented this cool thing to like reduce pollution and and smoke. Right. I guess. Uh, then, in October of 1882, Parker and his family moved to Wolverhampton, which, again, with the great British names of towns, Wolverhampton. And he set up his business with Paul Bedford Elwell? Elwell, sure. Elwell's family had a factory there that made nails and horseshoes. So, another basically forging company, right. I would assume. In Wolverhampton... Again, old European cities of the coolest names. Elwer and Parker began to manufacture lead-acid batteries and generators. From there, the business began to expand. Elwer Parker generators supplied lighting for industrial works, and equipment was supplied for a tramway in Blackpool in 1885, the first electric tramway in the country. So how are they running the generators at this time? Like the generators and the dynamos and everything? Is it still steam? I imagine it is. Yeah, that's my understanding. It was then that Thomas Parker developed his first prototype electric car. Dun dun dun. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think I was reading. I was reading today that um, we're right around that period now. Maybe we'll talk about it next time. But the first car race ever. Yes. Was won by an electric car. Yeah. Which so I think is- I'm getting a little bit into that here. So it, it's worth noting that up until this point, this prototype may not have actually been the first electric car. The history is really quite ambiguous as I was looking this up. So how did he become to build a car? Like, wh- how do we go from like making dynamos and generators and well, and, and then he's starting to use car. these things in like tramways and everything else. And I think this was just another one of his harebrained crazy inventions. Like he's an inventor. Yeah. So he's just like he just makes this makes this electric motor and just wants to put it on everything. Basically, it's like what can I use this rotational force for? Yep. And so they called him like electric carriages. I'm imagining his house filled with like his wife's like not wringing clothes by hand (laughs) with a crank. She's got an electric motor on it, and she's not doing like any kind of uh, blending of uh, to make bread with everything. There's just like an electric motor everywhere now. I'm thinking this electric motor is probably pretty big, so that's probably probably right. not Quite true. Quite rudimentary, but whatever. So yeah, so th- this may not technically be the first electric vehicle, but this is what I wanted to focus on because it's the first Wait, one qu- that question. went. Let me see if you know into that. production. Let me see if you know this. Yeah. So you have like a steam engine, right? And yeah. It's, and it's generating however much torque or horsepower. I right. think steam. It was still measured in horsepower, wasn't it? It was a, the ability of one horse to do a certain yeah, amount of work right. over a certain amount of time. So that's why it was like, you know, 0.5 horsepower, sub one horsepower. So were these electric uh, motors, so was the steam pump running the generator, charging Mm -hmm. the battery, which then (laughs) ran the electric motor, was, how much loss was there, do you think? Was there, like, were the electric motors efficient enough to be anywhere near as good as people using the steam pumps? Yes, 
but the batteries were not. Okay, so the batteries so, were garbage. <clears throat> the batteries were garbage up at that point. So, so you had to have a lot of batteries is what you're saying. So there's... Yes, I'm going to get into an example of that that you're going to love. Okay. So, but first kind of rewinding a little bit. So he builds this car. It's the first one that's like produced. This prototype goes into production. Okay, so that's why I was focusing on Thomas here and his lead up to this. Before this, how though, many? How many were there? Did he make? Um, that was Whoa. loud. <laughs> what was that? Our building is falling down. That's the ladies of the lake coming <laughs> the for us. <laughs> I don't have the number in front of me of how many he actually produced, but I will say before this came a lot of like electric models that were electric cars. And that was attributed to various people, like, hey, look, a toy car that's electric, by golly. And then came electrified locomotive in 1837, built by Scottish chemist Robert Davidson of Aberdeen. Hey, look, <laughs> a train that's electric. In fact, the seven-ton vehicle, I'm calling it a vehicle, not a train, because it had two direct-drive reluctant motors attached to two wooden cylinders on each axle. Wooden? Yep. Okay. It hauled six tons of freight at four miles per hour, for one and a half miles. Well, that's not very useful. Yeah. So it really didn't take off. The limited power from batteries prevented its general use. And in fact, it was destroyed. So here's a question. Are all these people... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I want to hear how it was destroyed. It was destroyed <laughs> by railway workers who saw it as a threat to their security of employment. Damn this newfangled train. I don't want no stinking electricity taking my job shoveling coal. At four miles per hour. Right. Was. So here's the question. Who is investing in all this stuff and all this ingenuity during the Industrial Revolution? I think it's these companies that are basically looking for the next big innovation. These private companies were somehow able to yep. do this all by themselves. That's what it seems like. How is that possible? Like, what are you getting at here? Is this some, <laughs> are you talking about free market? Yes, that's what we should emphasize. One of the entire industrial revolution was was, was I amazing. Get it. You're, you're trying to put your political lean on this, just I see. Bit, just yeah, a, little, a little push. A little push. All right. So after our giant locomotive that nobody liked and the hammer to the pieces, uh, next came an electric two wheeled cycle that was put on display. I won't call it an electric Something motorcycle. Something is being destroyed outside of it's our, our pocket. It's our street. Yeah, it's we're being on destroyed. the fifth store, mind you. The fifth store. Fifth story. <laughs> Fifth story. Yeah, so that's really loud. It is loud. Um, so we apologize for that. If there's any major destruction noises going boom. on, we're we're okay. Yeah, thanks for being concerned. Um, so yeah, electric two-wheeled cycle. I won't call it a motorcycle because I think it was literally like a bicycle that they strapped an electric motor to it. Um, and where did this? Where do you think this was introduced, Chris? Another uh, world exposition in 1867. So it was. Dudes were having some fun. Back then, oh yeah, I think this was like a great time to be alive. I, I want to just imagine it. like walking out of the front door of your house and seeing something you've never <laughs> seen before, but like every day, it's like some guy Holy goes by crap. on a bike with an electric motor. First of all, you, maybe you've never even seen a bicycle before, <laughs> yeah. and then it's got an electric motor on it. The next way, like the next maybe next week, a Schwimmwagen drives by. <laughs> it's just all these different things, and all of a sudden your neighbor has a refrigerator. Like, what? It's just like it's all these different things all happening at the same time. And you have like in one generation, uh -huh. an entire society went from poverty to comfort in one generation, maybe two generations. But it was this huge shift, huge step forward, like huge step forward for humanity. And it would just would have been this amazing time to be alive because you you grew up and like basically but you're shoveling pig shit every day with no you're pooping in a hole. And then you, and your kid, he's going to school. 
and like has a refrigerator in his house, you know, at some point. So it's just huge shift in, in human culture that I find really fascinating around this time. But apparently stinky, lots of coal. Yeah, but you when can't you have a smoke abatement. <laughs> yeah, but you can't. Agency. You get to do all this stuff, but damn it, you can't breathe. Oh, <laughs> uh, trade-offs. So uh, the bicycle was treated as a curiosity, as was quote not reliably drivable on the street. Well, that's probably because the free, <laughs> the street was covered in horseshit and rocks. You just imagine right? that guy that you see when you step out your front door. He's just screaming on this <laughs> thing. Ah! <laughs> so it, it wasn't until our protagonist here, Thomas Parker, came along and built the first production electric car in 1884 using his own specially designed high-capacity rechargeable batteries. When did Mercedes come out with their first combustion engine car? What year was that? That was, this, Do we was know? the same time, 1880s. All right, I got to look it up. Because this, yeah, this wasn't... Electric cars didn't come first necessarily. They were all right on the scene at the same time with internal combustion engines. And I'll right. get to that a little bit. I just want to, like, I want to <clears throat> trying to look it up. Carl Benz, obviously. Mm -hmm. 1885 to 1886 is when he filed the patent for that. So it's literally right there that same year. You got to keep him. I, I feel like it would have been this amazing thing because we now know what happened. Right. right. We know that obviously the combustion engine was way easier. It was, right. it was way easier for people to use. But back then, it must have been like, holy shit, here's this electric thing, here's this combustion chain. Combustion, this must have been like beta and VHS. Well, listen, like, we're not quite sure which one's gonna win. It wasn't. No? No. So Thomas was the first to production of an electric vehicle, but he certainly wasn't the last. In fact, in the 1890s, the next decade, electric vehicles outsold gasoline cars 10 to 1. Just destroyed them. Totally destroyed them. EVs dominated the roads and dealer showrooms. Some automobile companies that we know today, like Oldsmobile, Studebaker, actually both of those aren't in business anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they actually started out as successful electric vehicle companies, only selling uh, electric vehicles and later transitioning to gas power. So are you, going to, are you going to tell me why? Uh, why this yes, happened? I am. So uh, I will say, though, the first car dealership in the U.S. were exclusively for electric vehicles. There you go. So, so we're doing this big, like... I know. It's going to ebb and flow here. So these were the days before kind of the preeminence of the internal combustion engine, as you said. And electric vehicles were the first to hold many speed and distance records because of that. So among the most notable was the breaking of the 100-kilometer-an-hour or 62-mile-per-hour speed barrier by Camille Genterzi the in... Speed, did they call it a speed barrier? Speed barrier. 100 miles an hour is a speed barrier. Well, it's uh, 100 kilometers an hour. It's not like there's oh, yeah, actually... Right. You think of the sound barrier is actually like a physical wall of air pressure. No, you're right. But like the speed barrier of 100 is kind of like just arbitrary. It's just like really well, nothing stopping you but your own courage and your little... Right. How many batteries you can strap to something <laughs> at this point. But you think of like the salt race you know, back in the 40s and 50s, like the 200 mile an hour point was kind of a barrier that they were yeah, trying but to hit. At it's arbitrary. At 200 miles an hour, there's a lot of wind resistance. I think 60, at 102. When it's 60 miles an hour? You're right, 60. Never mind. Mm. I keep saying 100. You know, there's guys that can ride a bike 60 miles an hour, so it's not like... Regardless, this was a big deal at when the our time, Frenchman yes. Camille Gentazzi in 1899 in his, quote, rocket-shaped vehicle. Do you have a picture of this thing? Uh, shoot, I do, yeah, actually. It just, it looks like... What's his name? I'm going to look at I want to see it. Camille Genatazzi. J-E-N-A-T-Z-Y. Genatazzi. My name is Camille, and I will go quite fast in my electric rocket oh, car. Camille. Oh, look at this guy. Yeah. Oh, that dude is cherry pie, man. Look at that. Does He's... he have the mustache? Oh, my God, that car. <laughs> 
It looks like a rocket with wheels. It looks like a bomb with wheels <laughs> is what it looks like. Yeah, so... Oh, wow. That's Camille amazing. did it. He oh, did. here's a picture of him with the thing. It's all wrapped in... Dude, there's some babe sitting on the back of this <laughs> From thing. From 1899? Yeah. Okay. Look at this. This is amazing. I, so, I can't see it because you're not sending know, it to I know. me. I know. I'm not going to, I'll, but I'll, I'll describe. So it's like a bomb. And then there's a guy sitting in it, and he's got a little cap on. Of course. And sitting right behind him is a woman, in a, basically in a corset dress, and in, in, in looks like Jerry Seinfeld's puffy shirt, <laughs> and an umbrella, and then a hat with flowers all over it. Wow. I mean, this thing pulled chicks. <laughs> I imagine it did. It, it, it Oh, it's, it's really it's awesome. So that's Camille for us. Yeah, that's Camille. We're, I'm, I'm actually going to send this to you because this is a, just a great photo. We'll, we'll post it later. It sounds great. This might have to be our... <laughs> Why is you didn't mention that this vehicle is wrapped in flowers I as did. well? I did. I said that. Oh, okay. It's wrapped in flowers head to toe, and there's some babe <laughs> sitting on the back, and he's all looking babe stoic. Is uh, it's an interesting choice of word, but yes, it was a big deal, Camille. Well, she's not fat, so that's all. That's you know, you're already in at a five out of ten. Yeah, you're, you're already, already at five, at, five out of ten. And she's alive. And she's alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She doesn't have lung cancer yet. So moving on, also notable was our friend Ferdinand Ferdinand, Ferdinand Porsche. His design and construction of his first car, the very first car he designed in 1898, was the P1, an okay. all-wheel drive electric car powered by a motor in each hub, which set several speed records itself. Do we, do we know if McLaren named their car the P1 as an homage to that? I don't know, but I found that so interesting, the P1. I wonder. So the first P1 was an electric all-wheel drive car. Yes. And the next P1 was basically an electric hybrid all-wheel hybrid, drive but car. Yeah. But named P1. I mean, they're... I know. There's got to be something. I'm gonna. I'm gonna see if I can find that out somehow. Yeah. You got to remind me. I'll call McLaren. You do I, that. I know a guy at McLaren, so I will find out from him and see if I can find out. Is Bruce McLaren still alive? I don't know. Okay, no we idea. can call him. Uh, the first <laughs> that one probably not. No, <laughs> the first electric car over here in the U.S. was developed in 1891 by William Morrison of Des Moines, Iowa. The vehicle was a six-passenger wagon capable of reaching a 14 miles an hour. So I have so many questions about this. Okay. Why Iowa? Why does it need to carry six people? And it was like much later in the progression, 1891, when everyone else was in the 1880s building stuff in Europe. Oh, so why was the first one in America? Probably because it, it just wasn't needed. We I don't horses. know. You also got to keep in mind there's a lot of sprawl here. Right. So in, Hence in England. Why it's a six-vehicle thing in Iowa. Yeah. So you, you had like in England, you could drive you know, 14 miles an hour and be around town and get anywhere you needed to go here. I mean, the sprawl here is insane. That's why we still don't have a great public transportation system here to this day. True. Like they do in other countries. It's just because there's so much urban sprawl. Right. I think that's so, probably why. That was 1891. It wasn't until 1895 that consumers began to devote attention to electric vehicles here in the U.S. How much are they? How we, much? Yeah. How much money are these things costing? They're expensive. Like, They're for the upper class only is what I found. Okay. I don't have a number. Like, are we talking one percenters? Can I buy one? No. No, okay. So I mean, yeah, no. Okay. Um, Al Riker introduced the first electric tricycle to the U.S. The great-grandfather to Al Roker? <laughs> I'm thinking so. <laughs> By which point, Europeans had been making use of electric tricycles, bicycles, and cars for almost 15 years. So interest in these newfangled motor vehicles in general, not just electric ones, greatly increased in the late 1890s and early 1900s. Electric battery-powered taxis became available at the end of the 19th century. In London, Walter Bursley designed a fleet of such cabs and introduced them to the streets of London in 1897. They were soon nicknamed 
hummingbirds due to the idiosyncratic humming noise they made. Okay. So it's... Yeah. I guess. Okay. Well, at least you could hear something. True. Uh, that same year in New York City, Samuel... Wait, what did you... Hummingbirds don't sound like that. No, they go... They have, like, their, their yeah, wings are... Right. Okay, that was a better. Yeah. That was much better. Yeah. Thank you for that. No problem. So, same year, New York City, the Samuel Electric Carriage and Wagon Company began running 12 electric chansoms, they called them. What's a chansom? Electric chansom cabs. What's a chansom? I'm clicking on it because I didn't go down this rabbit hole. Oh, I, it's like the little, you got one horse in front and it's a covered carriage that it pulls with two wheels. Okay. Sure. All right. That's electric a- version of that, I guess. And I just thought it was interesting. I wanted to draw a parallel to how electric cars kind of were coming into the mainstream in the last decade or so. A lot of them were either like fleet models or you'd see them used as taxis or sort of things like that. Well, that's the only people that could really afford them is someone that was going to make money off of them. Right. So it's just interesting that that's obviously what they did back in the 1890s. Sure. And it's really no surprise that these electric vehicles were so popular when compared to their gas-powered contemporaries. So think of this. They had to have been more reliable. They didn't have the vibration, smell, and noise associated with the early internal combustion-powered cars. They also didn't require gear changes. So while steam-powered cars also had no gear shifting, they suffered from long startup times of they up to 45 minutes on cold mornings. Hideously complicated, too. Can you Just imagine hideously complicated. getting up for work and, like, tending to your fire in your steam car to get the boiler going, yep. waiting 45 minutes for your damn steam car to warm up, and then you got to, like, sh- do all the knobs and the valves and not over-pressurize it, and then it's going to blow up and... That's That'd not be a good. bad morning. Yeah, it's it's no good. Steam cars were, steam is ridiculously powerful. I mean, it is a serious serious it's, power. Yeah, but it's just so volatile. It's not it's not anything that a consumer should be screwing around with. Right, and so you're gonna sit there and for an hour and stoke up your boiler to go like four miles an hour. Yeah, I needed a block heater plug in into his house. <laughs> there you go. So electric cars were also preferred because they did not require a manual effort to start, as did gasoline cars when featured a hand crank. So remember, you'd always had to go up to go in the front of your Model T or whatever and crank it up and, and break, break your break, arm. Basically break your arm. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Because it'd kick back on you and it wasn't good. So electric cars found popularity, um, popularity among well-heeled customers who used them as city cars where their what limited is, wait, wait, range... Wait. Did you say well-heeled? I did say well-heeled. Does that mean... I wonder, let's... let's. Where's the etymology of that term? I think it's probably because poor people at the time couldn't afford to have their shoes resold. I know, I think that too. And so then you had a decent heel on your shoe. So were cobblers considered well-heeled? I think cobblers... Even though they were journeymen? No, I think that would be like a mechanic that drives a nice car that can afford to maintain it. True. Okay. I yeah, like that. Yeah. So I think it well-heeled must mean that you had a good heel on your shoe. Yes. You, and you could afford to do it and weren't poor and walking around barefoot. <laughs> so, yes, electric car owners were well-heeled. They used them as city cars in Europe and in East Coast, everything else in the U.S., where their limited range didn't really prove to be a disadvantage at all. Uh, electric cars were often marketed as suitable vehicles for women drivers due to their ease of operation. Oh, well, isn't that progressive? In fact, early electric cars were stigmatized by the perception that they were, quote, a women's car, leading some companies to affix radiators to the front to disguise the car's propulsion system. Ah, so this is the beginning of the was, end for the electric car. Well, does if this a woman sound can familiar? Use it, it's, it's not cool at all. No, not yet. <laughs> at least they would look better than a mouthless fish of a Model 3 we see today. Yeah. Put yeah. a grill on it. Put a grill on it. Are we saying Model 3s are only for women, Jake? No, but I, that'd be an interesting thing to look into. I don't know. Uh, acceptance of electric cars was initially hampered by a lack of power infrastructure because 
even if you're driving it somewhere where you're going to plug it in or change batteries or whatever else you're doing. Uh, but so by, in a way, they struggle with all the same things that electric yes, cars are struggling with that's today. That's what's so interesting what, is there's all these parallels. But at the same time, the competition wasn't even there. Right. So they still had all the same struggles without the competition. Right. So that'll be interesting to get into next month, week. Whenever we get to it. <laughs> Probably next week. <laughs> By 1912, however, many homes were already wired for electricity, enabling a surge in the popularity of the cars. So finally, we're actually getting electricity to your home. Mm-hmm. Now you can plug in your car. In the U.S., by the turn of the century, 40% of automobiles were powered by steam, 38% by electricity, and 22% by gasoline. Wow. Like, this is a weird time to have a car. Like I said, it's a weird time to have just anything. Everything is just crazy like you said there's all the trade shows everybody's inventing shit it's just everything's out of control i know so nothing's regulated it's just a giant free for it is a free for all for sure america quickly became the country where electric cars had gained the most acceptance over the world most early electric vehicles were massive ornate carriages designed for the upper class customer that made them popular they featured luxurious interiors and were replete with expensive materials how the uh, how many batteries did they have I, or, or what they did they have like giant it was just giant wooden box batteries okay and yeah it was basically like you made your like victorian living room in a into carriage. a carriage yeah yes so in order to overcome the limiting operating range of electric vehicles and the lack of recharging infrastructure an exchangeable battery service was first proposed as early as 1896 again this is something that would work in today's society, I feel like. Yeah, I think Tesla actually looked into this. The model was going to be just like as you'd go through a car wash, your whole chassis on the bottom of your car would be the battery pack that was modular, and the machine would, it just, would just change it, it out. It would just hook it and like exactly. drag it off the back of the car or something. So this this did actually work. The concept was first put into practice by Hartford Electric Light Company through the GV Co. battery service and initially available for electric trucks. The vehicle owner purchased the vehicle from GV Electric, a subsidiary of General Electric, without a battery, and then electricity was purchased from Hartford Electric through an exchangeable battery program. So you buy your truck, then you go to the battery company, and you buy your, your battery program yeah. where you keep exchanging them, and that you, where you don't have to recharge well, so them. The thing is, is how, what's the, what range are we talking about back then? I don't know, but the fact that it was only for trucks and not, like, consumer grade... Yeah, so did they have these little battery stations at, like, wherever it is that you're delivering your product? Did they have... I don't know. I mean, the, the range had to Logistics be, like, seven seem, miles. Yeah, sketchy at best. But I like I like the model of it a yeah, lot. Yeah, I like the concept. So the owner paid a per-mile charge and a monthly service fee to cover maintenance and storage of the truck. You know why I really like the concept? Why? Because it didn't fucking work. <laughs> <laughs> it did, in a way, though. Both way. vehicle and batteries were modified to facilitate a fast battery exchange. The service was provided between 1910 and 1924, so it worked for 14 years at least. Sure. And during that period, these vehicles covered more than 6 million miles. That's not that many over that period. No, it's not (laughs) with how many trucks they had, but I don't know. Um, Beginning in 1917 then, a similar successful service was operated in Chicago for owners of Milburn Wagon Company cars, who would also buy the vehicle sans battery, and then you have another service that basically has your batteries. So... It was just kind of this, like you said, this weird free-for-all where they're trying out different technologies and everything else, and it was the golden age of electric vehicles, really. Sales of electric cars peaked in the 1910s relative to all other vehicles. However, this golden age was soon to be overtaken. I don't know if I want to leave it there. I would leave it there, and then we can get into the modern stuff, uh, like the the early 20th century and onwards. Yeah, that's kind of when it, by modern, that's... 
not even then. Basically, I'll just tease that. I mean, there's electric a, there's cars a, fizzled out as gas-powered cars gain more prominence, and the the technology actually evolved a little yeah, bit. Yeah, for sure. Well, you have this big black hole of no electric vehicles for right. you know fifty years. I mean, there's a few things, but there were other it'll be, factors. It'll be interesting to yeah. We'll talk about it next week. All right. I think it'd be that'd be a good place to leave it for now. And well, uh, they're absolutely destroying the the road outside the I studio know. right now. Anyway, so. <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate everybody for tuning in. And uh, Jake and I are going to be back recording the Monday episode tomorrow. So uh, give us a call. Send us a message. Get a hold of us if there's anything you'd like us to discuss. Otherwise, we will see you next week. Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye.